Hi and welcome to Little Fictions On Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your host. Each episode, Little Fictions On Air brings you the best in short Australian fiction, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. In this episode, called Conflict Zones, we explore conflict and its aftermath from four very different perspectives. We also have an interview with one of today's authors, Patrick Lenton, about what inspired him to write his war-related piece. And just a warning that some of the stories that you'll hear today do contain some colourful language. First up, though, is Wrath of Achilles by Sydney writer Harry Colotus. Set in the streets of modern Greece, the narrator, a second-generation Greek-Australian, has front-row seats in an epic battle of wills. The story was recorded live at Knox Street Bar Chippendale and is performed by actor Nicholas Start. His name was Achilles, a good traditional Greek name that suited him well. He was a certain type of Greek, one of those uh, opinionated, narrow-minded, excitable types, born and raised in Athens, convinced of that city's innate superiority over any other. I, on the other hand, am second generation of migrant descent, neither Anglo nor Greek, which, of course, was why I was so drawn to him, like a moth to a flame. When my father died recently, I had to travel to Greece to unravel the documentation relating to some property that had been in our family for generations. I lacked the language skills to navigate my way through the Greek bureaucracy, and in a moment of irrational naivete, I convinced myself that it was a good idea to take Achilles along as my translator, driver, and garrulous tour guide. After we attended a thoroughly confusing meeting with my father's solicitor, Achilles drove our hire car back through the congested streets of the capital to our hotel. That is to say, he was honking the car horn like a maniac, gesturing obscenely at the other drivers while simultaneously conducting a heated conversation with me about the wankers in the traffic jam. This is something that you hear a lot with Achilles' conversation, the wankers. In fact, the insult is so overused that it even morphs into a term of rough endearment. Just as long as it's expressed with manly tones accompanied by a twist of the other person's earlobe or a rough squeeze of the shoulder. When the cars gridlocked before us, Achilles grew more and more irritable, and I knew from experience we were in for a childish tantrum of Homeric proportions. Veering away from the traffic with a tire squealing lurch, Achilles commenced to look for a shortcut. This didn't surprise me. From my brief interactions with the locals, it was apparent that this is exactly the Greek way of doing things. They despise queuing for anything. They are not submissive, docile people. Shortcuts, therefore, are a matter of pride, and also perhaps a stringent assertion of individuality. Achilles executed a series of left and right turns until he found the street he was after. Sure, it was a narrow one-way street going the wrong way, but so what? Almost immediately, another vehicle advanced towards us down the street in the opposite direction. We came to a halt approximately four metres away from the other car. Impasse. Achilles and the other driver commenced to bellow territorial challenges using their car horns like a pair of stags in rutting season. The other driver's name is lost to history, but let's just call him Agamemnon, in the spirit of a previous ancient Greek quarrel. Agamemnon was accompanied by a worried-looking little old lady dressed in regulation widowed black, almost certainly his mother. Neither car budged. Achilles made disdainful flicking motions with one hand, indicating the other car should reverse if it knew what was good for it. Agamemnon responded to Achilles' gestures by scornfully inclining his head upwards, which in Greece means no, as in 
absolutely out of the question, as in, get lost wanker. I tried to be the European voice of reason. Achilles, just reverse the car. Let's go back. We're not in a hurry. Achilles rolled his eyes incredulously. Are you joking? Let this wanker win? Why should he win? Nah, he doesn't get to win. He has to reverse his car. But he was in the right. We're in the wrong. I saw the sign back where you turned. It's a one-way street. Right? Wrong? What the hell are you talking about? Harry, I'm sorry, but you are too soft. You won't last five minutes in this city without me. These animals will devour you. Besides, do you think he knows he's in the right? Do you think he even knows that this is a one-way street? He doesn't know and he doesn't care the wanker. So there we were. Bonnet to bonnet, Achilles and Agamemnon alternating between blaring car horns at each other and twisting their bodies halfway out the car window so they could call each other wankers. And not in a manly, affectionate way either. <laughs> Agamemnon switched off his car engine. After a moment's hesitation, Achilles switched off his engine. Agamemnon went to the next level. He picked up his mobile phone and ignored us while he made social chit-chat. Not about to be undone, Achilles placed his cigarette packet next to his ear and commenced to talk. Achilles, what are you doing? Shh, I'm talking on the phone. No, you're not. You're just talking to your cigarette packet. We didn't bring phones. Achilles shot me a look of wide-eyed intensity. Yes, but he doesn't know that, does he? Now shut up and don't interrupt me. Mad, of course, completely mad. Agamemnon raised the stakes again by turning his radio to the loudest setting and settling back with arms folded beneath his head, Greek music blared out through the open windows of his car. The little old lady dressed in black who sat beside him placed a finger in each ear, not before crossing herself 50 times or so. By this stage, I had formed a grudging admiration for Agamemnon. I mean, he wasn't just your average wanker. There was a creative depth to his mule-headed stubbornness. Achilles turned on the car radio too, but it wasn't convincing. I could see that he was on the defence, reacting rather than initiating. Meanwhile, on the overlooking apartment balconies, a Greek chorus of residents began dragging out chairs and settling in for the entertainment. Agamemnon's next move was a masterstroke brimming with nonchalance. He pulled out a newspaper and commenced to read. <laughs> we stared across the car bonnets at the double-page spread that screamed in bold capitals, financial crisis, economy in meltdown, demonstration strikes Athens at boiling point. But at that moment, we were preoccupied with a far more pressing problem than a mere nationwide economic Armageddon. Achilles had a morning paper in the back seat. He raised his hand imperiously, give me the newspaper. Achilles, have you lost your mind? What are we doing here? How is this going to end? It ends when the wanker over there reverses his car the hell out of my way. Then, and only then, will it end. Now I was really worried. This could go on forever. Or at least until dinner time. The Greeks had a form in this sort of deadlock, albeit it was all a long time ago. The record for sheer bloody-minded perseverance was ten years. And even then, it took that trick with a wooden horse to break the impasse. <laughs> this is ridiculous, Achilles. If you're not going to back down, then go over and talk to him. You want me to go over there? You really want me to go over there? Because I'm telling you, my friend, there's going to be blood spill for sure. Right at that moment, I was so angry with him that the notion of seeing, say, about a transfusion bag of his blood spilled held a certain perverse appeal. Achilles opened the car door gave me a look of contempt, not unmixed with pity, and walked purposefully toward the other car. Agamemnon lowered his newspaper, 
gave him a death stare and got out of the car. Achilles' confident step faltered. Agamemnon and Achilles were both on the hefty side with prominent bellies. Between the pair of them, it was hard to pick who was the least unfit for mortal combat. (laughs) They commenced to wave their arms about excitedly without actually touching at any time. As long as neither of them physically contacted or, God forbid, struck the other, then everybody's sense of honour would be satisfied. Agamemnon's long-suffering mother rushed out of the car in an attempt to intercede her frail body between the two combatants. Sighing resignedly, I got out of the car to do the same. Achilles, with half-hearted protests and mock struggles, allowed me to drag him back to the car, accompanied along the way by ironic cheers from the chorus in the balconies above. We were back to stalemate. And then Agamemnon played the ultimate irrefutable wild card of which there was no defence. He got out of the car and locked it. Then with a parting sardonic wave to Achilles, he briskly walked up the street with his mother trailing behind it, admittedly throwing her arms in the air and crossing herself to ward off the devils possessing her son. Achilles didn't say anything for a full minute. And then he shook his head started up the engine and said the only thing you could possibly say in such a situation, the wanker. (laughs) I can still see in my mind Achilles reversing his car, one hand on the steering wheel, head hanging out the window to see behind him, the knitted monobrow, lugubrious jowls, the frown of black thunder like Zeus on a bad day. And for me, he will always be there. The wrong way down that one-way street, forlornly standing on principle and flying in the face of logic. I think this must be how myths are born. From small moments of madness rather than carefully thought-out actions. (laughs) We don't like admitting it, but something inside all of us celebrates chaos. We delight in it. We enjoy recklessness, especially that of other people. We secretly admire any soul crazy enough to shake his fist at the gods, the deliriously daft ones who taunt those that wield the power. We're drawn to hubris, like children expressing defiance of parental control. And when we're not fighting each other, we'll fight the nearest omniscient deity. It has been almost 3,000 years since Homer. Nothing has changed. The Greeks are still outside the walls of Troy, quarrelling with gods and men and the way things have to be in this world. That was Wrath of Achilles by Harry Colotus. Harry was born in England of Greek Cypriot parents, grew up in Scotland and now lives in Sydney. In the 1980s, Harry wrote a regular column for the national music magazine RAM, and in the 1990s, he was a regular contributor to Sydney's Child. He has written for Radio Playhouse and was a finalist in the Barclays Bank short story competition run by The Spectator magazine in the UK. Actor Nicholas Start, who performed Roth of Achilles, is a graduate of WAPA, the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts. He is a recurring character on the ABC TV's The XPM, and he plays the lead role in the independent feature film, Broken. Next, we'll hear a very short story, or microfiction, from Melbourne writer Charles D'Anastasi. In Broken House, a recently widowed man moves around the bombed-out shell of the home he had until recently shared with his wife. It is narrated by Tim McGarry, with an original sound design by Sydney composer 
Thomas Ross. After his wife was killed in the last air raid, he went around in a daze wearing her glasses, even some of her clothes. At one of the remaining windows of the half-demolished house, the sky, abandoned by all but a few stars, held the hour. He reasoned that only this darkness allowed him such strange stillness, where so many things became possible. He remembered how he used to stand next to her as she hung the clothes on the line and how, in a childlike manner, he would hand her the pegs one by one. It did not matter that sometimes between them words were knocked down awkwardly like glasses of spilt wine. Now he struggled to make sense of the open-ended silence that lay ahead. Again... And again, he would revisit their not-so-distant past. On austere hotel room, dimly lit corridors, a concertina of scratched music, flesh negotiations in the afternoon. He moved through the rubble, conjoined to the hour's slow burn, where memories continued to breathe in, breathe out, almost convinced... It had to be her sobs in the next room that clung to him like a wet shirt. And in the sky, stars shivered. That was Broken House, written by Charles D'Anastasi and narrated by Tim McGarry, an actor and founding member of Sydney's Monkey Bar Theatre Company. To see this evocative work brought to visual life, Check out Emily Twomey's striking video, up now on the Little Fiction's Facebook page. Our next story is set in Melbourne, at the Shrine of Remembrance. The piece is called We That Are Left Behind. It is by Hunter Valley writer Amanda Berry and was published by Spineless Wonders in Landmarks. As the beam of light passed over the stone, we stood silently, remembering... Greater love hath no man, etched permanently into the floor under the central pyramid. The assembled crowd dissipated into the sanctuary. Without intention, we'd crossed the blade-perfect grass into this classical temple. For most of the flawless afternoon, we'd strolled through gardens, observing and observed in a real-life impressionist landscape full of people pushing prams, dog-walking, picnicking, and a couple seduced into punting on the ornamental lake. Warmth was only in the light. Icy shadows were claiming the high ground when we climbed the stairs. Have you been here before? I said. No, never, he replied. Looking down the promenade, the olive tree glinted, golden and luminous. In the interest of peace, I said nothing more. His private war had been devastating, obliterating and bloody on a cellular level. Unseen explosions, a minuscule atrocity. Severing, erasing, scrambling memory and tangling logic. 
the greatest casualty was the present. Later, I'd find pixelated proof that we had been here, only a few years before. For now, I reached for his hand. Together, we left the forgotten shrine and walked towards the city lights and the low-slung winter moon. That was We That Are Left Behind, written by Amanda Berry and read by myself. The Little Fictions team interviewed Amanda last year, and she explained that the piece relates to a recent experience at Melbourne's Shrine of Remembrance. Amanda explains in her interview that her husband had a stroke several years ago, which damaged his ability to lay down new memories. I thought there was great irony, Amanda says, in being in a place dedicated to remembering, when he couldn't remember that we had been there before. The Shrine of Remembrance as a setting for this short story also had significance for Amanda as her father fought in World War II and instilled in her a great respect for war veterans. You can find the full interview with Amanda on the Spineless Wonders website. Our final story for today is When the Helicopters Come by Patrick Lenton from his collection of short fiction A Man Made Entirely of Bats, published by Spineless Wonders in 2015. In this story, a young man's holiday to Vietnam throws up an unexpected connection with that country's war-torn history. It is narrated by Alex Williams and was recorded live at Knox Street Bar, Chippendale. Today's version includes sound design by Kit McCutcheon. When the helicopters come. Imagine this. You're only 25 but you have all the habits of a pensioner. You like brand-based foods, and you sigh loudly when you sit down. Now imagine your girlfriend has been complaining that your lives are too routine, too monotonous, and that she wants to go to Spain. And you ask, what's in Spain? And she gestures around the living room and says, not this. And you answer, the living room? Because... I'll tell you a place where the living room isn't. The bedroom. And you leer suggestively. So even though you don't particularly want to go to Spain, you start to save up. And when you are ready to buy a ticket to Spain, she tells you that actually you have kind of invited yourself on her Spanish trip. Instead of being like, whatever, I don't even want to go to Spain, you say, that's cool, and drunkenly buy a ticket to Vietnam. Next, imagine that a week or so later, you're in Vietnam, but you didn't really do your research, and so you have to spend about 30 hours in a dirty sleeper carriage, traveling from Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh City. You're learning how to pee in a swaying toilet carriage, and you're stumbling and urinating on your shoes, and you think, I bet this wouldn't have happened in Spain. In your cabin are five American frat boys who are drinking wild turkey and yelling, Dick's out! Every 15 minutes or so, you can see that this probably wouldn't have happened in Spain, but that if it had, it would have been in Spanish, which would have made it sound more romantic and mysterious. Then you think, you know where this definitely wouldn't have happened? My lounge room. Now try to imagine that nine hours have passed in that train, and you're playing a card game called 500 with the frat boys. You're drinking their warm, sweet bourbon, and singing songs. 
and you realize that you haven't met anyone new for years. You don't like these people, but somehow it's worth meeting them and going through this horrible thing together. So you listen, and they're telling you that they are here on a pilgrimage of sorts to pay homage to the current U.S. presidential candidate, John McCain. Next, try to imagine that you've been on the train for 12 hours with this group of strangers, and they are telling you that they are a part of a society called the McCainines. After they say this, they give you that look. So you oblige and you say, why are you called McCainines? And they answer in chorus, because we're dogs. <laughs> but they pronounce dogs as dogs and they all howl afterwards. Then one of them explains that mostly they help John McCain's presidential campaign by distributing leaflets. And then they explain that John McCain's spent several years as a POW in Vietnam, and they were on a pilgrimage to honor what he went through. So imagine you're in a carriage full of McCainines in Vietnam when one of them asks why you are here. It's been 15 hours on that train and outside the sun has risen, illuminating green rice fields and a warm purple sky. So you lie. You say you were doing it for your grandfather, who was a Vietnam veteran. And with a start, you realize your grandfather actually was a Vietnam veteran, and you do admire him and his quiet satisfaction at drinking a beer in the sun. But then imagine that they start asking you questions about your granddad, about what he did in the war. They want to know if he was in the Navy, but you have no idea. In fact, the only thing you can remember about his life was that he was a Cabotos champion in Scotland. Finally, imagine that after this 30-hour train trip, you are in the War Museum in Ho Chi Minh City, looking at a photo of John McCain. Underneath it, you see pictures from the fall of Saigon, when the U.S. evacuated the city. They had to move so many people to the decks of the aircraft carriers that they famously pushed helicopters in the water to make room. Caught in heroic motion in one picture is your granddad, as a young man, bodily tossing helicopters off the deck, exactly like he tossed cabers years before that. He's like Superman, bodily lifting entire helicopters on his own. Suddenly you realize you have no idea what the hell a caber is, and you also realize you would never have seen this in Spain, or cooped up in your house. Imagine that. That was When the Helicopters Come, by Patrick Lenton. I met with Patrick recently to ask him about what inspired him to write this short story. Here's what he had to say. This is uh, one of those stories that comes from a very, very personal experience. I, I went to Vietnam a long time ago now, actually, and uh, one of the two things I remember was travelling on this horrible overnight train on a tour um, with, like, just all these, like, nice people, um, but, like, not the kind of people I would normally sort of associate with. And it was like a nine-hour train trip. And we played cards, like the same game of cards the entire time. And I went 
like I went stir crazy and a bit insane. Um, and, uh, and I just remember thinking like, this is one of those experiences where I'm probably never going to spend this amount of time with someone I dislike this much ever again, or at least hopefully not. And, uh, and I was like, yep, that's, that is one memory that like, I'm going to sort of maintain beyond the kind of like faded sort of postcard thing. Like this is a visceral sort of one that will come with me. And then the, um, and then the other one was, um, when we went to the, uh, war museum and, and I, you know, I was just looking at all these, you know, all these pictures from history of helicopters being sort of pushed off the, uh, boats and, you know, things like that. And I was like, yep cool um that's a like that's a that really struck stuck with me for some reason oh and um and we went to the prison where john mccain was um uh held um i'm like yep that all stuck with me so that that's all things that like you know maintain their kind of like emotional flavor rather than just like you know a vague memory and then uh and my uh my partner at the time was in scotland um, and, and I wasn't there. Um, and like, that wasn't a thing like in the book, but, um, but in that story, I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, maybe that's the sort of conflict to take him to, um, Vietnam. And then while I was writing this story, I thought, uh, cause you know, you ruthlessly pillage all your own memories and, um, uh, all your like experiences and your family's experiences, you know, whatever it takes to get a good story. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, was well, anyone in my family in Vietnam? And for like this horrible moment, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> um, like, I was like, did my grand, like my granddad never went to war, did he? And like, I literally had to sort of think very deeply about it. And I'm like, that was a terrible sort of thing. And, um, and it was that sort of feeling of like, of being a bit guilty and, um, and disconnected from your own family's history that I, I was like, that's, that's what I want him to discover in and then, because I can never just do anything uh, normal, I was like, "Well, um, what would a like, what would this guy's granddad be if he was like a Vietnam War hero?" Um, and I was like, "Yep, yeah, he, you know, someone who can literally throw an entire helicopter with one hand." That's that's pretty much all I could think of. Um, yeah, so I don't know, a, a bunch of weird connections and like odd memories, but it all sort of came together for whatever this is. <laughs> that was Patrick Lenton discussing his story, When the Helicopters Come. That's all we have time for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the stories in today's Conflict Zones episode. Authors featured this week were Harry Colottis, Charles Danastasi, Amanda Berry and Patrick Lenton. And the actors were Nicholas Start, Tim McGarry, Alex Williams and myself, Ella Watson-Russell. You can find out more about these performers by visiting the Little Fictions on Air page on the Spineless Wonders website at www.shortaustralianstories.com.au. We very much welcome your feedback on the show, so please head to the 2RPH website, www.2rph.org.au, and leave a comment. Next time, we'll be bringing you some light-hearted stories in our comedy shorts episode. There's a talking ibis, a mock heroic journey through American suburbia, a woman with a very contemporary addiction, and a young man named Kurt has a job interview with an eccentric manager, which just might remind some of you of Ricky Gervais's satirical TV show, The Office. Plus, I'll be interviewing two local Sydney authors about the ins and outs of writing comedy. 
Don't miss the next episode of Little Fictions On Air. Little Fictions is brought to you by Sydney short story publisher Spineless Wonders. This episode is produced by Bronwyn Meehan and our sound engineer was Kit McCutcheon. Our theme song, A Tune, is written and performed by Annie Vidler. I'm Ella Watson-Russell. Do join me next time for more Little Fictions. <laughs>